we're in Matthew 28. If you guys aren't there, go ahead and turn there. I want to say something before I get into the teaching tonight. I had a really good conversation with someone I really respect. And if you were here Sunday, I just want to maybe clarify something because I want to make sure that well, my heart was understood, but I really don't want to misrepresent Jesus. I said something to the effect of, you know, all we ask is a Sunday and a Wednesday and a home group, and, and then comparing that to what the church was doing in the first century. And I want you to know that I don't want anyone to feel a burden or a millstone or a have to. My heart, really, the Lord's heart for us is that we would desire to be with him in every aspect of our lives and that we would yearn and look for ways to be in fellowship with each other, that we would look for an excuse to be together. So if you're here, let's say, for example, you're a single parent or you're listening to this message and you're a single parent and you're like, I just can't do all these things. Like Les said, it's for freedom's sake that he set us free. So we're not driven by fear, we're motivated by his love. And I just wanna make sure that's clear so people don't feel one, like I'm saying they have to. One, that's also not the way this bridge is operated. I have thankfully been able to grow over the years because I've been given freedom and not set under an obligation. And so I just want everyone to know that. That's the Lord's heart. So day by day, and as much as the Lord will give you grace for that, and everyone's in a different place, but we want to be encouraged in that direction. So we're here in Matthew 28. We're here in Matthew 28, verse 18, and it's a well-known passage. I'd be surprised if anyone here hasn't read it or at least heard it. And for lack of a better title, I'm calling it Discipleship 101, Faith by Obedience. But I almost feel like we should call it the call called to make the call. And you'll see why. On September 27th of this, month, uh, this year, the editor for Christian Headlines Kayla Koslowski wrote the following in an online article titled, quote, the fastest growing church in the world is, quote, spreading like a wildfire in Iran, new documentary. I feel like that title is out of something from the office. <laughs> Long title to get a point across. But according to the Frontier Alliance International Studios, Sheep Among Wolves, volume two documentary, inside of Iran, a country where the majority of the citizens are Muslim, the fastest growing church in the world is blossoming underground. Ms. Kozlowski continues, according to Fox News, the church is without buildings, property, or central leadership, but still, it is steadily growing. The movement's aim is not to plant churches, but to grow discipleship. One unidentified church leader said, the seismic shift that's happened in the church of Iran is, when all these church planters found out that converts run away from persecution, but disciples would die for the Lord in persecution. Disciples forsake the world and cling to Jesus till he comes. Converts don't. Disciples aren't engaged in a culture war. Converts are. Disciples cherish, obey, and share the word of God. Converts don't. Disciples choose Jesus over anything and everything else. Converts don't. Converts run when the fire comes. 
disciples don't, the leader answered, asserted. Go with me a little longer. Miss Kozlowski writes further down, the underground movement, which is pro-Israel, that's really fascinating, is being dubbed by film director Dalton Thomas as the, quote, Iranian awakening. One believer said in the video, we know that if they get us, the first thing they will do to us as a woman is rape us, and then they will beat us, and ultimately they will kill us. This is the decision we have made that we want to offer our bodies as sacrifices. Because I have this thought when I wake up that when I leave that door, I might not come back. The church leaders, missionaries, and people interviewed in this documentary talk about what they call the DMM, AKA Disciple Making Movement. So what's another word for Disciple Making Movement? It's actually not a new word, church. The Koine Greek is ekklesia. And literally it means, as we saw this Sunday, the called out ones, the called ones, the called out. I submit to you that what's being described in Iran is not a movement, although the Holy Spirit is definitely at the, on the move. It's the continuing and ongoing building project Jesus established in Matthew 16, 18, when he promised upon this rock, his name, who he is, I will, I will build my church. I will build my called ones. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Revelation 12, 11 teaches that in the tribulation, and I believe it's appropriate today as well, that believers overcome by the blood of Jesus, by the word of their testimony, and by not loving their lives even to the point of death, as we see so well described here in Iran. That is why the called ones in Iran are growing in number and spiritual power. They're not following a 10-step program to add numbers to their congregational constituents. They're, they're not doing a book study. They're not even, quote, trying to build the church. Think about that for a second. Their goal is not to build the church. They leave the construction and the building project to the Holy Spirit. Their goal isn't to build the church. Their goal is to make disciples. It's an interesting paradigm. I grew up in a college, I'm, I grew up in college being part of a college campus ministry. I remember back then hearing a talk about being a part of a gospel movement on our campuses. The vision was that every student would have either received the, go the gospel or knew someone who did. You couldn't get away from that college campus, wherever you were, from hearing the gospel. Awesome vision, and this got me excited in my early 20s. This is what's grabbing the attention of people in my generation and the ones coming after me. The word movement moves people, stirs people. That's because it's not stale, empty, irrelevant religion. It's a challenge that requires my sacrifice to be a part of something greater than myself, but that's benefited by my personal commitment and my unique contribution. So it doesn't overlook the uniqueness of who I am, but it goes way beyond Jacob Barksdale. 
contribution. Contribution is a word we saw this Sunday that's used to describe fellowship. It's not just a hangout. It's just not a group of people who share common values. There's contribution. And as I talked about rather in length this Sunday, there's sacrifice required. Millennials and Generation Z, for all the problems that ail us, this is what we're dying to find. Something greater, something beyond ourselves. Being a part of a movement in my generation means that I have something that's valuable to contribute, but to something that is greater and beyond myself. That said, as I've continued to walk with the Lord, I've grown less enthused with being part of a movement. Now, I'm, now that I'm such an old-aged sage at 34 years old. Mm-hmm. Movements are temporary. Movements are fleeting things that come. But at some point, they lose momentum because they're based more on temporary conditions of the culture at a given time. Jesus hasn't called us out, pun intended, to be part of a movement. And John the Baptist didn't come preaching about a spiritual movement. John the Baptist came proclaiming the kingdom of God and he called people to repent. Here's the truth, the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn around, draw near to God before time is out. He's calling you out. He loves you, he wants you. Give your life to him. John 3, 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's this close. The church planters in Iran realized that their focus was in the wrong place. The Lord isn't opposed to planting churches. Let me make that clear. And neither am I. But that's more symptomatic of what happens when we keep the main thing the main thing. Some might argue, well, wait a minute. Isn't that what Paul did when he preached the gospel among the Gentile nations? He planted churches? He did, but I submit to you that his goal was not to plant churches, even though that's what happened. When we in the West think about church planting or planting churches, we think in terms of numbers. We think in terms of a church name. We think in terms of getting a nonprofit 501c3 status. We think about having a building. Church planting has nothing to do with developing people into an organization where it has paid staff to do ministry. Not too long ago, Pastor Les mentioned this, we wanna see pastors raised up in this fellowship that aren't paid. Pastors, people who care for others, people who guide and direct. Honestly, mature Christians who help shepherd the Lord's people. You don't need a paid pastor for someone to be a pastor. Church planting as defined by Jesus is disciple making. And quite honestly, that is how this, this fellowship got started. There are a number of believers, but I've heard plenty of stories and I've met some of the folks who started coming because they heard the word of the Lord being proclaimed, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that folks need to repent. And <laughs> Spencer, Spencer was one of those. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Notice, he doesn't say go plant churches. Churches, Jesus said I will build my church, singular. There's nothing wrong and I don't wanna get hung up in semantics but I wanna stress this point because I think we really need to do a shift in our understanding of who we are in our identity and what we've been called to. Jesus goes on in verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So let's look at verse 18 here. I'll read it one more time. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus, because of his unique power and his sacrifice, has proven and he's established his sole position above everything and everyone to have all authority. All authority. The word all in the Greek literally means all. Now the reason I stress that is especially in the culture we live in, we say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but as I'm about to get into, is he? Now we say that from here, and we know the right answer, but is he truly the Lord of my life? Colossians 1.16 teaches that by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. The word for all in Matthew 28, 18 is the same word for all and everything here in Colossians. So what does this teach us? Jesus is the ultimate reality. We live in a day and age and a culture where augmented reality is becoming more and more our reality. People want to escape the real to go into the fake so much so so that the fake becomes the real and the real becomes forgotten. They've even made a movie about it, Ready Player One. It's fascinating and to be honest, for me, it's disturbing to me. It bothers me. Fascinating story, but it's, it's unnerving. Everything begins with Jesus and everything ends with Jesus. Jesus is the end of the line. Jesus is the fulfillment and Jesus is consummate all in all. This also means that whatever Jesus says, whether I like it or not, is the answer. Whatever, I, whatever Jesus says, whether I like it or not, is the final say and it is the indisputable judgment. And I have a choice as to whether or not I'm going to align with that or not, but it does not change the fact that Jesus is the supreme. That's like saying, I don't believe the sun exists. You don't have to. 
It doesn't change the fact. This is why the church in Iran is exploding. It's very simple, but it is very pure. And, be, and because of that, it is very powerful. They understand that Jesus is all. All. I'm married and I have kids. They are not my all. Jesus is my all. Not long back, maybe a week, well, more than a week ago, before Rick left, I forget when he brought it up, but he had shared more, on more than one occasion, interestingly enough, that when Cheryl went septic and her life was in jeopardy, he started asking an honest question, what will I do without Cheryl? And the Lord very lovingly said, I am your all in all, not Cheryl. For us married couples, we need to consider, is my safety and security based on my spouse? Do I, do I find my value and worth in my kids? Because the Bible says Jesus is our all in all. They understand that Jesus is Lord. They understand that Jesus is master. And so the Iranian believers treat Jesus according to who he is. Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Psalm 136, verse two. Give thanks to the God of gods for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who alone does great wonders, who alone does great wonders, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Are we getting the point? I, Jesus starts out here in, in what is titled in our Bibles, the Great Commission, making a claim. We have to first come to grips with that before we go any further into this. Is Jesus my Lord? Is Jesus our master? When the greatest king up to Daniel's time in human history witnessed the real power of Israel's God through Daniel, even he confessed in Daniel 2.47, surely your God is a God above, among. He is the God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Is he your master? That's what Lord means, master. So if he's our master, one could argue that that makes us his servant. Some would even go so far as to say slave. We actually see that in scripture. Before I go down a road you might expect, I'm not gonna quote Paul here. I'm actually gonna to refer to the Muslim community across the world. I genuinely, if you get to know me, you know that I genuinely love the Muslim people. And I have Muslim friends that I love, I care about, and I pray for. That said, I don't believe in Islam. And my friends, my Muslim friends, know that. However, I believe that there are many good qualities within the Muslim culture that I can respect. And if you're starting to go, where is he going with this? Follow me here. Paul demonstrated this very same thing 
this very same respect for the spiritual devotion of the Athenians when he came into the city of Athens. Why don't you guys turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, starting at verse 22. See, I think one thing that the Iranians have going for them is because they have a concept of master and slave that has been lost on us. Because I'm an American. I have rights. You're not my boss. Well, I am your boss. Well, I quit because you can't tell me what to do. Like we, we, have, we are so entitled with all of these rights. We have inalienable rights, which I thank God that our country has had that ups so far. But because of that and many other things over the course of history, our American culture has seeped into our identity and our DNA as a church. Looking here at Acts 17, verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, quote, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Our Muslim neighbors have, like the Athenians, they have many names for their God. Descriptive names. So do we. But one, if you didn't know this, Muslims have one unknown name for God. And if you ever see Muslims praying with their prayer beads, there's 99 beads. The 99th one represents the name the unknown name for God. I believe the reason there's this unknown name is because the God of Abraham is calling them out. He is using this as a, as a means to speak to them. And we see it happening over in the Middle East. We're witnessing a people who have not grown up in the church the way we understand it, the way we've been trained. And yet they exhibit a greater faith many times a greater obedience, 
and an unfailing loyalty that many of us struggle to even conceive. It seems not much has changed since Jesus' visit. The first time he came, we see some of the same kind of thing happening. Go ahead and turn with me now to Matthew 8. Matthew 8. We live in a country that has been blessed with freedom, so we can have a structure like this and meet here. The people in Iran have to go under cover of night. And like that woman said, walk out the door thinking tonight, today might be the last time I'm at home because of what might be in store for me. Matthew 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest. Verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. This is not a Jewish man. Imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. He understood even back then because he was a God-fearing man and he took time to understand God's word even though he wasn't part of the household of Israel, that it is not fitting for a Jewish man, let alone a rabbi, to come into the house of a Gentile. Jesus said, I'll come to him. The centurion said, I'm not worthy. Just say the word. Verse nine, for I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And to my slave, do this. And he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. The one person in the Gospels whose faith caused Jesus to marvel in a good way was someone outside of what today we might call the established church, like Iran. The God of gods and the Lord of lords shows no partiality as we see here. He will seek out the faithful wherever they are. It doesn't matter where they come from. It doesn't matter what their past looks like. He looks into the heart. Second Chronicles 69. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Completely. Without reservation. What kind of reservation? With what kind of abandon? This woman said, we're ready to be raped and beat and killed. And they do it with a smile on their face and they do it with joy in their hearts. Our brothers and sisters who suffer great persecution in places like China, Iran, North Korea, 
are suffering because they understand Romans 12.1. Therefore, Paul writes, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, your spiritual service of worship. I've already said it, but I'll say it again. An Iranian woman's confession reveals what many Iranians feel. This is the decision we have made, that we want to offer our bodies as sacrifices. Why? Because they recognize Jesus as master, commander. He's in charge. What he says, I do. John Wesley said in one of his letters, Give me 100 men who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. I just want someone sold out, simply committed to my word. That's it. Let's look at verse 19. Go back to Matthew with me, Matthew 28. Let's just read verse 18 one more time. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's the one in charge. We need to accept that. Then he says in verse 19, go therefore. That's as far as I'm gonna go right now. Let's break it down. There's been a lot of misunderstanding over what this succinct verse means. Go, therefore, there's two Greek words. The first word, go, is poor you, oh my. Poor you, oh my. Think of it that way. Poor you, oh my. And it means to lead, carry over, or transfer. Jesus is saying to them, I have all authority, go. Transfer, carry over. To pursue the journey on which one has entered to continue on one's journey. Jesus started the journey and he says, continue this. Carry over what I've started. After Jesus says, carry on with me as I continue my mission, he says, therefore. Go, therefore. The word is un, accordingly and consequently. It follows describing what has already been declared. I have all authority and so I am charging you to go because of who I am, because of what I've said, because of what I've done. If we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we don't get to choose how we serve him. That right there, that little line applies to a lot of things. The church in America, brothers and sisters, we need to take stock of where we stand with God. I remember, especially in my teen years, my dad holding me accountable going, who's in charge here? Whose house is this? Who's the son and who's the dad? He had to remind me on occasion to put me in my place. And I think that Jesus tonight wants to put us in our place and remember our place to him. He loves us, but he's Lord, not me, not us. If we truly have surrendered our lives to him, that means our lives belong to him. The clay doesn't say to the potter, you can't use me this way. Verse 20, 
If we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we don't get to choose how we serve him. That's his call to us. He's called us out. The church, ecclesia, the called ones. He called us out. We didn't call him out. He made the call. We accepted the call. So now we live for the call he's placed on our lives. This section in scripture has been called the Great Commission, but unfortunately for most of us, myself included, we've treated this like it's the Great Suggestion or the Good Advice. This is the Great Commission. I'm curious, raise your hand if you served any time in the military. Okay, go ahead and put your hands down. So when you hear the word commission, you have a sense of what that means. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 3, suffer hardship with me. How? Like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. In an excerpt from one of the Iranian church leaders, they say disciples aren't engaged in a culture war. Converts are. I've grown up in it, and I've seen so much of it. So many Christians that get tied up and wrapped around the axle about what's going on in trivial, trivial affairs in this country. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. My identity at the end of the day is not being an American. I hope that doesn't offend someone. I have offended people with that, people who've come here. And because of that, they've called me things like commie. John, please don't hose me. <laughs> but as you guys are gonna see here, as we're gonna see, Jesus didn't get wrapped up in the culture. The Pharisees couldn't, they tried to play him, but they couldn't play him because he was playing on a game way above their heads. He was playing in the eternal realm. He lived on the spiritual plane. That's where we need to exist. How many of us are carried away with the politics of this country and confusing it for our calling as Jesus' disciples? To be American does not mean to be a Christian. Maybe it's not politics. I see some of the young folks in the back corner there. Maybe it's not politics that have you distracted and entangled. Maybe it's the latest debates or trends in social media. Hmm? We're always like this on our phones. What entangles you? What is distracting you? What's taking your focus off of Jesus? and who he is, who he says you are, and what he's called you to be a part of with him. Jesus interacted through the government of our day. He did. And he was in touch with the times and the culture of the day. But Jesus made it clear to Pontius Pilate in John 18.33 that his concerns went far beyond the culture and the government. This is not my kingdom. If it were, my people would not have handed me over. Here's, here's one point for you. Don't be entangled by the cares of this world. He, be empowered by his spirit. Live by the spirit. What Jesus has called us to is simple. But why is the church in Iran exploding and going haywire and bonkers? While we have questions and we wonder how much of us in America really truly are believers. 
because they're not entangled by the cares of the world. Because they're not hung up on the current trends of the culture. Is anything keeping you from simple and pure devotion to Jesus and his kingdom? We are citizens first and foremost of his kingdom. What I say tonight is very simple. But if it were so simple, if we got it because it's so easy, then how come things look the way they do? Why are the people in Iran ready to go and be brutally tortured for the sake of the gospel and we're afraid to share the gospel because we might lose a friend? Keep things in perspective. Look with me to Matthew 28, 19 again. We've only gone two words in. He says, go therefore and make disciples. We'll stop there. I really want us to understand what this means because there's a lot of misunderstanding in the church about what this is. What does Jesus mean when he says, make disciples? It's actually one word. Make disciples is one word in the Greek. It's matatuo. Don't have to write that down. But literally, it means to follow the teachings and training of another. The teachings and training of another. The root word for this is mathetes, literally, Learner, pupil, student, my peeps in the back. But it goes deeper still. There's another root word for the root word. Montano, literally, to learn by use and practice. To learn by use and practice. Essentially, Jesus says, train others to follow my teaching so that they will learn by practice practice. Our brother Les has said on more than one occasion, a lot more is caught than taught. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to catch more than what someone's teaching you? I shared Sunday. I'll share it again. I flunked a semester of algebra in high school. Well, why? Because I had a hard time taking what looked abstract to me and applying it. I couldn't get, wrap my head around it. Why? Because it was all theoretical at the end of the day. How do I apply advanced algebra to something in my life? I remember going home, I'm like, Mom, why am I even learning this? I don't want to do this. Uh, how do we even use this? And she was going through nursing school and she said, actually, Jacob, we use this for logarithms so we know how to give people proper dosages so we don't kill them when we pump them up with drugs. I was like, oh. Well, I don't want to be a nurse. <laughs> but the thing is, discipleship is a practical thing. It's not a theory. We don't show up in the halls here and read about it and, hey, we've mastered it. We get introduced to it here but the rubber meets the road when we practice it out there, when we practice it in each other's lives. What, is, what does less mean when he says a lot more is caught than taught? If you want, you can turn over to Deut Deuteronomy chapter six. I'm gonna look at three verses here. Deuteronomy chapter six, starting at verse one. This is where we find the Shema. Now this is the commandment, Moses says, to the whole assembly of Israel. The statutes and the judgments which, which the Lord your God has commanded you, I'm sorry, let me back up, has commanded me to teach you. Guys, he says here, commandment, 
commanded, statutes and judgments. What part of this sounds like a suggestion to us? It doesn't sound like there's room for negotiation. He says, the Lord's given it to me. He's commanded me to command you, to teach you, and he says that you might do them, do the statutes, do the judgments. Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly. Multiply greatly. What did Jesus command the disciples and by extension us? Essentially to multiply. What did he say over in Genesis? Be fruitful and multiply. The art of teaching to train others, not just to be students, but to train students into teachers is a concept that goes way beyond the church, way back to the beginning. We've been made in his image. How do kids start to learn how to speak? My kids learned how to use words long before they learned how to write words, long before they learned how to read. Why? Because they watched Cam and I constantly. They watched us over and over and over. Why do those babies sleep so much? Because they're like sponges. They wake up and they're just (laughs) sucking in life. Life, 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 life. Overload, crash. Wake up, poop, change my diaper, start again. They're learning constantly. They don't stop. They soak it in and they apply it. They watch us walk and they try and they struggle. You know, I've, I've never actually seen a baby give up on trying to learn to walk. I've seen babies struggle to walk. I've seen some babies, because of medical condi- conditions, not be able to walk on their own. But I've never seen babies go, I'm done trying. It's not in their vocabulary. They're constantly learning. Parents you have been given the greatest opportunity to disciple people for the kingdom with your children. Don't look at them as just kids or your progeny. They are men and women that have been created by God to be a part of his kingdom. What are we doing in stewarding that? He goes on in verse seven, Deuteronomy 6, 7. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Wait a minute, Jacob. You were here Sunday and you said, we're not supposed to be diligent students, we're supposed to be loyal followers of Jesus. Correct. Follow on though, he says, teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Just this week, I got a FaceTime call from my wife. She's doing school with our kids. Judah is having a hard time because he's got a subject that isn't easy and it's not quick and so he doesn't want to do it. It's too hard. It's really not too hard. It just takes time. And this kid's seven. He's got too much life to live. He doesn't have time to waste on stupid numbers. And I remember looking at him and I remember actually something that I've heard from more than one person something I learned and I've been learning more and more as I've gotten older. Jesus wants me to learn from him how to learn in every aspect of my life. And so I shared it with my son. Judah, have you prayed and asked Jesus to help you with this yet? No? Well, let's do that. And then I started to talk about Jesus and how Jesus is practical to him, figuring out math and learning how to read and write. And my son got it. 
you shall talk of them, the Lord's statutes and judgments, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Is God, does he ooze out of our, our pores? When we breathe in and exhale, is he that substantial to our life? That when my son or my daughter hear my wife or I talk or interact, they hear Jesus. They hear Holy Spirit. They watch God the Father at work. He is not a part of our life. He is, he is life. And everything that we do is shaped and molded and functioned through him. Amen. Discipleship goes way back before the church was born. First thing to know here, discipleship requires receiving. Moses had to receive this from God. Are we in a place to receive from God? Because folks, reading Matthew 28, 18 through 20, isn't gonna cut it. Are we gonna receive what he says here as the master and commander of my life? Now here's the thing, once you've received, you've gotta share and give it away because this is the economy of God. We saw this with manna. If you know your Bible stories growing up as a kid, the people of Israel wandered through the wilderness and God gave them enough for each day. He gave them more than enough for each day. But he said, don't store it up. I'm gonna give you enough net tomorrow. Well, what happened when they stored it up? Except for the sixth day. I know some of you Bible students are like, actually, Jake, there's one day where they could just track with me. In principle, they were not supposed to store it. Eat it, consume it, use it, because the next day God would give you something fresh. And what happened when they tried to store it up? It went bad. It went bad. This is the same principle that's true of God's word. We take it in, we take it in, we take it in, and we don't use it. We store it up, it goes bad. It goes south. This is the economy of God. Guys, we see this principle at work in the nature he's created. Here's a question. Do you want to be the Sea of Galilee or do you want to be the Dead Sea? The difference between the two, the Sea of Galilee receives water into it and then gives water out of it. The Dead Sea just collects it and collects it and collects it and collects it. As a result, it's dead. Nothing lives in it. If you've been there on one of our church trips, you know how painful it is to get in there with a cut. If there's anything that's alive, gets exposed to the Dead Sea, it kills it. This is what happens when we take God's word and we sit on it. When we fill up on it and store it. Studying God's word and stopping there is like someone who dissects and investigates a meal. Like, who here likes watching the Food Network? Okay, oh, whew. am I the only dude? Wow, oh, hey, all right, we got some guys in the back. Don't watch it when you're hungry. I do that way too much, can you tell? Anyway, go to the Food Network and all these people, they describe it. You know, after you watch enough of these shows, you hear the same thing over and over. All you do is watch people slobber over food and talk about how good it is and you hear them crunch into it. You don't get to taste it. You don't get to smell it. They dissect it apart and tell you about it. Does it satisfy you? No. No, it doesn't. I'm getting upset about it even as I talk about it. <laughs> Studying God's word and stopping there is like someone who dissects and investigates a meal. They might even put it in their mouth and taste it, but they never actually consume it. 
to affect, to strengthen, to fuel their body. Let me paint another picture. We got a whole lot of Bible students in the church, but not many disciples. We can tell you what, God word, what God's word looks like. We know how it tastes even. We can tell you how it smells, but you'll never see us actually consuming it. You'll never see God's word actually affect our lives. We just show up day in and day out, week in and week out, and we fill up, we store up, and we get gut rot. It's like an emaciated, starving food critic. Can you imagine someone coming straight out of the concentration camps and they have a food show and they critique it and they look at it, but they never actually want to eat it? Does that not sound insane? Studying God's word is not enough. If it stops its study, then it's never actually going to empower your life. It's never gonna give us the supernatural of his spirit. You'll just be a natural person who likes to talk about spiritual things. Pastor Jake can talk a good word, but does Pastor Jake walk in the word? Meanwhile, you're starving and the whole world around you is laughing at you because you're an idiot. I said idiot. Because we do this, we study it. We look at it, we talk about it, we tell other people how much they need it, but everyone else is looking at us like, really, we need it so bad that you're not eating it? Whatever. I know this sounds harsh, but the truth is, this is the reason why so many people leave the church. Not everyone, but a lot of people have. Why? Because it's irrelevant. Because it's impotent. Because it's a worthless organization. It's just an organization. It doesn't work because they don't see anyone doing it. Who's doing Matthew 28, 18 through 20? Who's actually doing it? I got lots of books to talk about it. I can go up, you look up YouTube clips and, and get my fill there. But who's doing it? Who can show me how this looks? John 13, 13, Jesus says to his disciples, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. After all that, he says, you're blessed if you do them. He didn't say, Jacob Allen Barksdale. It's my middle name, guys. I've kept it a secret for eight and a half years. Yeah. All the things I could keep a secret, it was my middle name. Everyone here is like, what? And they're like, oh, the mystery is revealed. Yep, that's my middle name. Jacob Allen Barksdale. There it is. I said it a second time. God's not looking at me saying, did you read the book from cover to cover? Mmm, spiritually pious. I am impressed. He doesn't give a rip how much I memorize it. I, I would hazard a guess Satan. The devil himself could recite every word out of this book word for word, but he ain't going to heaven. There is a huge, massive chasm between reading 
and studying and actually doing it. I'll say this, little plug for our brother who's next door. Luke just recently took a group of students down to Seattle to a, an event called Dare to Share, where they got equipped to go share their faith. You know what they did after the conference? They went out and shared their faith in, in twos and threes. I remember Luke telling me, he thought, I'm probably gonna have to like encourage them. This is gonna be uncomfortable. They got out of the cars and you guys went to town. You didn't need anyone to tell you. He's gonna do it again, He's gonna, but somewhere here in, in the area, he's gonna take the group of students and I said, hey, I know I'm not really in it anymore, but can I go with you guys next time? I want you guys to know that's what it looks like to not let people look down on you for your youth, but by your conduct, approve yourself. I look up to you guys for that. I was not doing what you guys did when I was in high school. Keep it up. We need more like you. Keep on sharing your faith. They're doing it. How can I expect someone else to live by God's word if I'm not showing them how to? Jesus said in John 13, I washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He taught them and then he threw it to them and they lambanoed it. It's your word, brother. They caught it. He taught it and they caught it because he showed them, because he did it and they looked, they watched and observed what it looked like to do it. They grew up in a society full of scholars and theologians, AKA Pharisees and Sadducees. But to see someone walk this out, that is radical. This goes beyond words and it requires the teacher to lead by example, which is exactly what our brother Luke did. He led them by example. He didn't drop them off and go, all right guys, I'm gonna pray for you here, but you guys go out. He went out, he did it. He showed them, they showed him. They had fellowship together. They went out on the battle lines not knowing what to come against and they went out in faith and they practiced and exercised the faith they claimed to have. If God's word isn't practice, you know what it does? It putrefies and petrifies the heart and the soul. It rots and decays and it turns it hard. 2 Corinthians 3.14, but their minds, Paul is writing about Israel, their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Jesus said this about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous men, but inwardly, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Earlier in this same chapter, Jesus says, Matthew 23, verse one, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses, teacher. Therefore, all they tell you, do and observe. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. That's convicting for me. How many nights have I told the students, you gotta share your faith, you gotta share your faith. If we had to measure that, how much Jake told them to share their faith 
and talked about it and described it versus Jake actually going out and showing them how to share their faith. Is, is God's word a coffin or is God's word a fountain of living water in your life? One is full of dead things that have no action. The other is full of life and it's overflowing and it spills out and gives life to others. That's what's happening in Iran. That's what's happened in China. That's what's taking place in North Korea. What is it going to take for us to take this and own it and go, this is who we are and so we will do this? Paul said, I speak what I believe. What I believe, I speak. There's an introspective question. What do I talk about most in a day or in a week? I know that a big part of who God has called me to be is to make disciples. What does that look like in my life? Matthew 28, 19, section C. Taking it apart, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, baptizing them. The word baptism is baptizo, baptizo, literally to dip repeatedly. That's interesting. To immerse or to submerge. I'll just throw this out real quick. If you've been sprinkled, dabbled, whatever, but you haven't been immersed, there's no condemnation. But we got a cool little pool over here that would love to see you go under. Jesus would. It's open to anyone, any time of the week, whenever the doors are open. We do it out of obedience. Jesus said it, and then he did it, and so we do it. He called us, we accepted the call, and the call was to place the call into other people's lives. How they receive the call is not up to us. Matthew 28, 19, section D. Baptizing them in the name of Jacob, Allen, Barksdale. That's a third time I've given you my middle name. No. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, we know, Jake. We got it. Well, I don't know how many people do got it, and I'll explain. Jesus is commanding his disciples, and by extension, again, those of us today who have accepted the call to follow Jesus, to teach and train others to follow Jesus' example, immersing and covering them in God's name. This is critical to understand, and it is absolutely vital to follow if we're going to be successful in making disciples. Christians are not called out by Jesus to make followers of themselves. The people I've discipled, if they have followed Jake, then I have led them down the wrong path. Jesus did not call his disciples to make disciples of Peter and John and Nathaniel and Philip and Judas. He called them to make disciples in his name. We're not supposed to make little protégés of ourselves. We've been made in the image of God. Paul and Apollos had this issue. They addressed it in the church. Some of you say, I've been baptized by Apollos. Some of you have been, say, I've been baptized by Paul. I'm in this name, I'm in that name. And Paul's like, what in the world is going on? Who saved you? 
Who died on the cross for your sins? Who redeemed you? Who gave you life? Whose spirit is in you? I don't know who I baptized, and it doesn't really matter. Because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We've been baptized in his name. We've been given his spirit. We are followers of Jesus. If anyone in here is teaching people to follow your example, period, stop. Teach people to follow your example if you're following Jesus' example. Paul said, imitate me as I follow Christ. Literally, follow me as I follow Christ. Not because my example is the paramount, but because I am following the example. Learn from me how to learn from him. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are anxious and heavy burden. Learn from me. I'll give you rest for your souls. Learn from me. Are we actually learning and receiving and acting on what he's given us? Is he the Lord and master of our lives? We're not spiritual Twitter goers. We're not twits. Where we're seeking to make people or get people to follow us. How many followers do you have on your Twitter account? We're seeking to teach. We're seeking to train others to follow Jesus' example. To follow Jesus, not Rick, not Jeff, not Les, not any of my shepherd, uh, any of our, our shepherds, my brothers, people I respect. We're not called to follow Larissa or Rachel or Eva. Name anyone on staff or anyone you deem a leader in this church. You're not supposed to follow them. You're supposed to follow Jesus. And we're supposed to encourage each other in this. That's what the fellowship looks like. We're called out to call others out in Jesus' name, to follow Jesus' way. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Our goal is not to have people follow our ways. I know I'm beating a dead horse here. I'm well aware of that. But I'm beating a dead horse because I don't think we get it. I've shared this before. I'll share it again because I'm super repetitive and redundant. My wife is really intelligent and always has something new and fresh to say, but not me. I'm a one-string banjo. I'll share this. I remember my dad calling me in. I had a bad attitude. And he starts talking to me, and he realizes I'm hearing him, but I'm kind of not hearing him. And he says, you think you know what I'm going to say? And I said, yes. And he said, what am I going to say? And I repeated what he's always said in the past, because I had that down. And he said, yeah, you're right. I'm like, hmm. Whoa, he agreed with me. And he went, so how come you're not doing it? I will shut my mouth and I will listen. We know what the Great Commission is. Are we doing it? It is that simple. All authority has been given to him, and if you've received his call, he's telling you to go, therefore, and make disciples in his name, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. John the Baptist did this beautifully. In John chapter one, verse 35, the next day, again, the next day, John was standing with, the two, with two of the, the disciples, his disciples, two guys that were following his example. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples, one of whom was Andrew, Peter's brother, saw that and they followed Jesus. That's what our discipleship part looks like. 
we show people how to follow Jesus. We come alongside them, we encourage them. There's not one grand poobah. I am not Rabbi Jake. There is one rabbi, there is one father. Jesus is his name, that's who we follow. Are we teaching and training though, people to follow that? How much of this is lip service and intellectual information and how much of it is practical, applicable, working in our life? Let's look at verse 20 here. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. But he says, teaching them. That word teaching is didasco. It's what I'm doing right now. It's what Rick does every Sunday and Wednesday. It's what Les has done. Didasco. To hold discourse with them, to instruct them. It, this is instructional. Titus 2, 1 through 6, teaches older women to teach younger women how to walk with the Lord, and men likewise to teach younger men how to walk with the Lord. I'm not gonna address the women right now. I wanna address us as brothers. How many of us brothers are teaching our younger brothers how to walk with the Lord? You know what the disciples asked Jesus? Out of everything they could have asked him, teach us, fill in the blank. They said, teach us how to pray. I'm not here to inflate someone's ego, but it works based off of the teaching here. And I, anyone who has spent time with less knows exactly what I'm talking about. But I have learned so much about how to pray because of our brother. That, that has affected my life. Reading a book on prayer has not. I can read books. That doesn't help me. I can learn models and how to share the gospel, but if no one shows me how to share the gospel, it doesn't matter. The word observe, he says, teaching them to observe. The word observe is tareo, and it means to attend to carefully. It means to guard. It means to perceive. And so just as Jesus taught and trained his men how to follow his ways, by extension... Coming on down the line of human history, we have been taught and we have been trained by others to follow Jesus' ways. Likewise, just like Jesus' guys back then, we are commanded, we are not suggested, we are ordered by our master to teach. We are commanded to train. We have been given the example to instruct and exemplify what it looks like for others in how to follow Jesus so that they can see it, so that they can imitate, not me, not you, but imitate Jesus. Imitate Jesus' way in me. There was something uh, that I learned when I was part of Campus Crusade for Christ, now crew. And when we went overseas, both times I went to countries in the Middle East, and both times... Our leader said, just know this, because of the nature of the country we're going into, you might be the closest thing this person ever gets to seeing who Jesus is. Wow. I better step up my game. It starts to provoke questions like, do I know who Jesus is? Do I know what he would say here? Do I know how to share my faith? Do I know what the gospel is? 
Here's a question for you to consider. Do you know what the gospel is? And if you say yes, awesome, then my challenge to you this week is go find someone you don't know and share it with them. Ooh, what's the worst that could happen? I highly doubt any of us are gonna get beaten to death. I highly doubt any of us are gonna get thrown in jail, lose our homes, have our families murdered. Someone might blow you off, that's it. Someone might get really angry. The first time I remember sharing my faith with Campus Crusade for Christ was on a beach down in Southern California. We got done with the annual uh, Pacific Southwest Winter Conference. And at the end of the day, they released us to go out into the various areas before we went home to go share the gospel. And they'd given us Campus Crusade's thing, the four spiritual laws, very simple. I was really intimidated. I remember going on the beach and I saw this one guy kind of sitting on a sand dune. And I'm like, oh, how do I do this? I must have looked beet red because my, my head felt super hot. My ears light up red like Rudolph's nose when I got hot. This one's, I think, kind of red. I can only imagine how red I look, but I came up to him and I remember trying to start a conversation like, hey, nice ocean, huh? <laughs> I won't tell you the details of the conversation, but it didn't go well. I went up and I started to shoot the breeze with him and then I started to ask him spiritual questions and it didn't take him long to go, wait a minute, where's this going? He got so ticked off with me. He said, do you know I'm Eastern Orthodox? Are you trying to convert me? I'm like, duh, 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 duh. I went apoplectic. I, I didn't know what to say. And he just continued to berate me and chew me out and I buried my head in my hands. I'm like, please go away, please make this stop. And then it stopped. And then I looked up and all I saw was the ocean. And then I looked around and I couldn't see the guy. That was one of my early experiences sharing my faith. I'm here today, I'm not dead. And what's funny is when we went back and gathered back of the cars, we talked about our experiences, and I had fellowship with others who had difficult or encouraging or strange experiences, and we talked about it together, and then we prayed together. And then I continued with Campus Crusade for Christ. You know what happened to that stuttering, shy, intimidated, scared guy on the beach? He ended up, by the end of college, being the guy who led evangelism for our campus ministry at CSUB. Everybody who spent lunch on a regular basis on the campus grounds knew this face by the end of school. I had students coming up to me asking me, hey, I don't know how to share my faith, but I know you do, I'd like to go. Can you show me? And I went, sure, let's go. Denise is one name that comes to mind. She's like a little sister to me. Married and has kids now. She was incredibly shy. But you know what? Someone took her alongside with her and they went out together and they shared their faith, pure and simple. And sometimes it went well, sometimes it didn't, but it didn't stop them. And they weren't intimidated because they had each other. We have each other. You know, that's the other interesting thing. Notice it says Discipleship 101. I got lots more in the bag. Now granted, I don't think this message has been super deep, but I think it's very appropriate. And I do think it's convicting and it challenges us.
the cost of discipleship. What's it going to cost us? I'm going to end here. But before I do, I want us to look back at this passage. Go ahead and open your Bible if it's closed. Look at it. Verse 18. Jesus starts and says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go down to verse 20. At the very end of verse 20, what does he say? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. My wife pointed something out that I've never noticed in this passage. She said, correct me if I get it wrong, but more or less, she said, isn't it fascinating that Jesus' command to us is sandwiched between his authority and his presence? He's on both sides. He's in the beginning and he's in the back. Jesus went to the cross proclaiming the gospel. I don't think any of us here in the current state of things in this country have to be worried about having to die on a cross like that. Jesus led the example for us and because of that, he has the authority to tell us what to do. Are we gonna take that command, that charge and go do it? His authority covers us and so authorizes us with his power. Look at it this way. Instead of a have to, look at it as a privilege. You have been deputized by the almighty living God who holds the universe in his hand and he says, I have given you my limitless power to go preach my name. You have the right. And if anyone says you don't, it doesn't matter what tribe, tongue, nation, law, whatever it is, it don't matter. My law trumps theirs, so you go do it. His authority authorizes us with his power to do his work, and his presence holds us and goes with us to empower and equip us for the work he's called us to do, and he's still doing. See, that's the thing. He hasn't stopped. Jesus has endowed you with the authority to make disciples in his name. Jesus has given you his presence so you can succeed by the power of his spirit. So three things I wanna leave with us tonight. We don't have to worry about building the church. Fortunately, because this podium here is breaking down already. Jeff, I think we're gonna have to glue the foot on this thing again. Jesus will build his church. We don't have to worry about that. How, how do we make the finances? Don't worry about it. Jesus said, seek my kingdom first and I will add all these things to you. I will take care of your needs. Do we believe that? We know it here. Do we believe it in here? Jesus will build his church. He's called us to make disciples. The people in Iran aren't concerned with planting churches. Their concern is making disciples. Why? They went, well, that's what Jesus says, so I guess that's what we'll do. Here's a second thing. Have you received Jesus to transform you and empower your life? Know this. I shared this with the students on more than one occasion. Throughout the Gospels, most of the people Jesus talks to are people who, quote, were God's people. And yet for most of them, he said, you're not. You know what it says, but you haven't received it. And the people who should have known best were the most blind. Because for all their lip service, God was not the Lord and master of their life. 
They led the Bible studies, but they didn't know what it actually looked like to walk in God's spirit. Have you received Jesus to transform you and empower your life? Maybe you have, but you're like, I feel weak. You know what? Les has talked about it a number of times. We do it every time we baptize someone here in the water. We pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Have you been baptized by the Spirit of God? If you haven't, come talk to Les. (laughs) Come talk to us. Come talk to Mike. Do you know the shepherds here? Because you know what? We're called. We've been given a charge to serve the fellowship. Get to know us. Ask us questions. It might challenge us to step up our game. And lastly, if you have received Jesus, what are you doing to share him and what are you doing to give him away to others? Is his word just petrifying in our hearts? Or is it flowing like living water out of our lives? So, Rachel's got a song for us in this invitation. I just want to put this out as people, folks, go to the tables. If there's anything here that's challenged you, you're in good company, because even as I say this, I'm challenged by it. Remember, Luke, the new youth pastor, he's the one that led the students in sharing their faith, not me. I'm no pro. If you want prayer in sharing your faith, come pray with us. We'd love to pray with you. If there's someone in your life that you know needs Jesus, you want them to have Jesus, then come pray with us. If you are seeking people to come alongside you to help you grow in your walk with Jesus, we would love nothing better than to come talk with you and to pray with you and see what the Lord might have in store there. If there is anything on your heart that God has put there tonight, whether or not it has anything to do with this teaching, Come pray with us. Let us pray with you. Let's do this shoulder to shoulder. Let's be in fellowship together. Let's go into this spiritual fight together. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we have a commander who leads us into battle and doesn't just sit up in his lofty throne far away unpracticed you have done it you have led the way all we have to do is follow you in it you've already won the battle we just have to walk in faith that's what you said to the children of Israel wherever your feet go I have given this land to you it's time we take the land It's time we go out and we look at people's faces and recognize them as souls that are eternally precious to you. I pray, Jesus, that you would give us a heart for the people in Fidalgo and North Whidbey and on down the island and LaConnor and Bow and Mount Vernon and Burlington and Cedro and Stanwood And on out, Lord, that we would see people precious. You came to set the captives free. If we identify with you, then we ought to be caring about the same things you care about. I pray, Lord, that tonight's message for those who may have been convicted or just in challenge, maybe just challenged, Lord, that the words that we have heard from your word, from your voice, Lord, that 
we would be blessed because we do them. Help us to follow your example. Give this fellowship the grace to walk out our faith in absolute obedience that we would pick up our cross and carry it and follow you as you continue to carry the cross. Jesus, you have paid the price to make a way for us. I just ask God that you would please do a work in this fellowship where we see the lost coming to you. Discipleship is a messy business. Our brother was saying that in uh, our prayer time before the worship tonight. There are gonna be people who come who aren't neat and pretty, whose lives have been ravaged by the enemy in this world. You're calling out to them, the, the rejects and the outcasts. Lord, give us a heart. Break our hearts for what breaks yours and motivate us by our love, by your love, to get us past our own insecurities and our fears to share your gospel, learn how to share your gospel, and learn how to come alongside people and show them how to follow you, because we do it. Teach us how to train others to follow you. We lift up this word to you in this evening. I ask God that this would be something that would continue to ruminate, Holy Spirit, and brew in our fellowship, that something would be birthed as a result of this. In Jesus' name, amen. We're here to pray. So if there's something that you want to pray about, we'd love to come alongside you.